BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Outdoor dining, daycare centers, movie theaters, every day officials are announcing new areas of the economy that can start opening for business. But at the same time, coronavirus cases are rising sharply in some communities. And coming up on Forum, we'll take your questions on reopening the Bay Area and the latest science on COVID-19. And we'll look at the World Health Organization's muddled message this week on transmission of the virus by people without symptoms. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. The Bay Area continues to reopen its economies despite as many confirmed new coronavirus cases as there were in March. Childcare for non-essential workers, summer camps, curbside pickup at libraries and non-familial gatherings are now permitted in some counties. And meanwhile, on Monday, the World Health Organization said that it was very rare for the novel coronavirus to be passed on from asymptomatic individuals. But after pushback from other scientists, the WHO yesterday watered down the message. In this hour, we'll take your questions about the pace of reopening here in the Bay Area, the increase in coronavirus cases, and the WHO confusion. And joining us is KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. And welcome, Leslie. Good to have you. Good morning. Good morning to you. We'll also say good morning to Dr. Robert Wachter. He's professor and chair in the Department of Medicine at UCSF. And Bob Wachter, welcome back to Forum. Good morning. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here. Leslie, let me begin with you, and let's begin by just having you outline for us uh, what letting up on the lockdown has meant in terms of what some are describing as surges of cases, which may be tied, of course, to more testing. But what are we seeing here, particularly in terms of what many people are saying, uh, well, maybe opening up too soon? 
Yeah, I mean, we are seeing tallies continue to climb across the state. I think it's important to note, for, especially for a Bay Area audience, that the biggest spikes that we are seeing are in Southern California. If you look at, say, L LA County yesterday saw 1,200 new cases, whereas for you know some context, Alameda County saw 40 new cases. So we have seen the numbers rise in the recent weeks. We're not totally sure what is driving those upticks. So we are sunnier. We are more restless. We had Memorial Day weekend. We now saw the protests. However, we are also seeing a lot more capacity for testing. So it might be just a result of testing more frequently. So these upticks are happening. You know, fortunately, we are not seeing uh, hospitalizations uptick or surge. Hospitals are staying pretty steady. And so right now we are still in a situation where most experts feel that it is still safe to start reopening things as long as the public continues to follow, you know, the rules of social distancing, washing our hands, wearing masks. It raises a whole question, uh, Bob Wachter, about just how valuable or valid uh, the models are that we have. I noticed that Matt Willis, a public health expert in Marin, was saying they have a lot of robust data. They feel comfortable about staying open, but not all the models that are perhaps, uh, shall we say, more pessimistic are all that reliable. You know, I think, you know, models and, and data, you know. Excuse me, let's say I was going to go to Dr. Wachter on this, but we'll come oh, back to you please, in a second. Please. I'm sorry. No, please. Yeah, he's, he's yes. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, there are a lot of different models out there. It's actually been one of the fascinating parts of, of the pandemic is seeing the amount of data that we have and, and the different models. And they're all imperfect, although they're, they're all getting better than they were, and we have a lot of information. Uh, all you can do is the best you can do. And we now have uh, what we're watching in Northern California is not only case rates, which, as you say, Michael uh, and Leslie, are influenced by testing rates, uh, but also uh, lagging indicators, but important indicators like hospitalizations, ICU use, and things like that. And quite reassuringly, in Northern California, uh, the number of hospitalizations is stable to going down. And in, in San Francisco today, uh, we have a total of 38 uh, patients in hospitals in all of the city of San Francisco with confirmed, uh, confirmed COVID. That number was 90 uh, a couple of months ago. And, uh, and we only have a total of 14 patients in ICUs <clears throat> in the entire city. So the models are important and we're watching them very carefully. As Leslie said, that as we do more testing, uh, that, that makes the case rate a little bit harder to interpret. But overall, I think we're doing quite well and uh, it, it does feel like the right time to begin uh, opening up somewhat, but then watching super carefully because if things start going bad, you have to close back down. Well, Leslie also mentioned nine Bay Area counties where numbers have gone up pretty uh, dramatically, many linked to gatherings and particularly gatherings in homes. Uh, we're not going to know for a couple of weeks at this point, are we, about just what the uh, protest effect will be? Uh, those who are out in the protest, many of them not wearing masks, obviously. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's right. I mean, the, the dynamics of, of any uh, risky event, whether it's you personally going and seeing friends or going, uh, or going out or large gatherings are that if someone gets infected, they may not have symptoms for five days or so. They may not test positive if they get tested for three to five days. Uh, and if they get sick enough to go to the hospital, that might take another five to seven days. So when you look at hospitalizations or, uh, or uh, indications like that, it's a lagging indicator. So yeah, if there was a protest last week, uh, we probably would not see evidence of that in terms of case rates 
uh, until next week or maybe uh, maybe later this week. The good news though is there's a lot of testing going on in the Bay Area, whereas a month ago, it was virtually all patients with symptoms and therefore you're waiting for patients to have symptoms. Today, there's a fair amount of testing of, of asymptomatic patients. And one example is at UCSF, um, every patient in the hospital gets tested. You might say that's not a patient without symptoms, but even a patient who comes in with a heart attack or the patient who comes in to get surgery on their knee is getting tested. So it's, it's a, a, a reasonable facsimile of a test of a large population of asymptomatic people. And on those tests, we're running about one in 300 of, of those are positive. So a, a positive rate of 0.3, 0.4%. And that hasn't changed in the last several weeks. So if there was going to be a big up in the Bay Area, we would probably begin to have some signals of that from some of the testing of asymptomatic populations that are being done in various places. Yeah, and I want to talk about asymptomatic, uh, this whole phenomenon with the WHO, but let me go back to you, Leslie. Uh, what were you going to say about models? Oh, I was. I, what was funny is as I was listening to Dr. Wachter, as I was like, oh, good, I was about to say the same thing he was, <laughs> which is that, uh, you know, they're the best we have, and they have changed, uh, you know, they've given us different information throughout the entire pandemic and they're not perfect i think that's what we know but they are the best thing that we have and they are getting better so that's all i was going to say well also getting better are all the therapeutics could i get you to just give some general comments on that leslie i mean we're a long way perhaps from a virus uh, we hope maybe within the year but that's hopeful uh, at the same time though a lot of therapeutics are being developed and there's real progress there isn't there i think so i think it's a little early to say that we you know, should start moving forward based on some real good news around treatments. I think there is still a lot of work to be done on treatments, and we are definitely, like you said, at least probably a year, maybe 18 months away from a vaccine, which is still, you know, I think that's looking more positive. I think there was a period there where that I was thinking, why do we keep sort of referencing this 12 to 18 months? That's not a guarantee. But the good news is that we are moving and getting information that looks like that could actually unfold. So, but I wouldn't say that it's time yet to look to treatments or the vaccine as the, as the way to stop this. I really think that we need to focus on the public health measures of you know, what we've heard over and over, wash your hands, wear your mask, you know, stay home at your, if you're sick. That's really what's gonna slow this virus down right now. Do we know anything, and by the way, I said virus and I meant to say vaccine, uh, so I misspoke, but do we know anything else uh, in terms of, uh, well, the sort of rules that we were all living by, wash your hands, uh, social distance, uh, anything new on that score that people should know about, particularly prophylactically? I think people should know that it's working. I think that's what's really important here is that if we socially distance, if we wash our hands, uh, if we stay home if we're sick, it actually does work and we are seeing that it, that it does work. And I think we will especially know uh, more in the coming weeks after these protests, if we don't see a giant surge, uh, then, we, then we know that, for example, staying outside and, and wearing our masks and, and being in a, in a more aware place around this virus is actually keeping it at bay in ways that will prevent our hospitals from becoming overloaded. And we have to remember that is the ultimate goal here is that we wanna make sure that we have a healthcare system that can respond in case there is another uptick. And if you've just joined us, uh, we're talking about reopening the economy and the latest coronavirus numbers with KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg and 
Robert Wachter, who's professor and chair in the Department of Medicine at UCSF and an author of a book called The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. What questions do you have about reopening and the latest coronavirus numbers? You can give us a call now, and I invite you to do that. The number to call toll-free is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. Let me go back to Professor Wachter. Uh, Bob Wachter, at this point, uh, we're still sorting out this kind of muddled thing that happened with the World Health Organization. Uh, it's been called a misunderstanding. Uh, Maria von uh, Krakow, who's uh, actually head of emerging illnesses or emerging diseases, I should say, uh, came out and said, well, it's pretty rare. Um, the data is an ongoing debate and it's disputed and so forth. But what, what happened? This caused quite a fury, really. Yeah, it just demonstrates that uh, in a pandemic, people are listening very carefully and looking for messages and uh, and they've got to be crystal clear. And that's been part of the challenge that we've had because the messages we've gotten from various leaders around around the world uh, have been less clear than they need to be. In this particular one, uh, there's a part of what she said that is perhaps technically accurate, but but extraordinarily misleading. And so what she, I believe, meant to say is that for a patient that, first of all, we know that uh, a, a good number of patients that have, have COVID have no symptoms for a while. Now, some of them have no symptoms forever. They never have symptoms and we'll call them asymptomatic. Others have no symptoms after they have gotten the virus and and if you wait a couple of days, they will go on and get symptoms. So we'll call them pre-symptomatic. But at the time that we're looking, uh, if, let's say it's two days before that person who is going to get symptoms has them, they look the same. They both feel perfectly well. If you check their temperature, they have no fever. And when she said transmission by asymptomatic patients is very rare, well, if you look at the patients who never go on to have symptoms, very rare is a little strong. But I think we know that it's, it's relatively unusual that those patients will spread it to others. They're not coughing. They don't have a fever. The amount of virus they have is probably on average lower uh, than others. That other person who is, quote, pre-symptomatic, meaning they will get symptoms in a couple of days, at least the best evidence says they are fully capable of transmitting it. And before that person develops symptoms, they both are asymptomatic. So when you come out and you're the WHO and you say asymptomatic people are really, you know, essentially no risk, that's a signal to everyone to, oh, if someone has no symptoms, then, you know, they don't have to wear a mask. I don't have to wear a mask. We don't have to distance. You know, those people can go into a restaurant and whatever. I think it's a very confusing message, and I think it set us back. I think they, they walked it back uh, quickly the next day, and I think it's, it is fair to say that there are patients without symptoms who are fully capable of transmitting the virus, and therefore all of this, the, the measures that we're taking to try to stay safe are absolutely appropriate, and if you just wait for symptoms, you're going to miss a lot of cases, and there's, there's going to be a lot of transmission. I know it's difficult to separate uh, pre-symptoms from asymptomatic and those who have mild symptoms, but can we say sort of categorically that asymptomatic transmission is still an open question? No, I don't think so. I mean, we can, we'd say the science is still emerging on this, but there, from some of the studies from in nursing homes and from the cruise ships and, and, and from the, uh, the Navy ship, there are certainly patients who transmitted the virus and didn't have symptoms at the time that they did and never went on to have symptoms. But it's less common 
than patients who transmit the virus before they have symptoms, and then a day or two later, they go on and they develop fever or aches or, or, or a cough. But I think for all practice, that's almost of academic interest. That's the kind of thing that scientists debate on the head of a pin. You know, for practical purposes, I can't tell the difference between someone who is asymptomatic today and someone who is pre-symptomatic today, and we need to treat that the same Meaning that uh, the, the general public health message is if you're, if you're uh, hinging everything on, oh, if the patient doesn't have symptoms, it's safe. That's just wrong. Well, the WHO didn't have a lot of data to begin with. That was part of the problem. But there was a Scripps uh, research translational uh, paper that was put out that was quite global and used about 16 groups and said asymptomatic cases account for 45 percent of coronavirus cases. I mean, how they well, come up with a figure like yeah, what that? They're, what, yeah. what they're saying is asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic, that, that if you sort of lump that together. And, you know, in the, at the end of the day, it probably doesn't matter whether it's, it's 30% or 40%. We know it's nowhere close to zero, and therefore kind of the global public health measures that, that we need to treat everyone, even if they feel fine, even if they don't have a temperature, as potentially having COVID and being potentially infectious. And that's not meant to panic people at all. We've now been living with this thing for three months, and I think we have a better feel for it. But it is to say that uh, that if you buy the message, which I, I, I believe is wrong, that no symptoms and therefore safe and safe to congregate and safe to be around and don't need to wear a mask, you'll get it wrong too many cases and there will be too much spread and I, it's unnecessary. I want to bring some callers on here and let me begin, Marshall, with you. Good morning. You're on the air on Forum. Hi, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking my call. Um, my wife and I are both um, full-time and we've just had a newborn uh, and delivering that during COVID was interesting enough, but um, we're putting the oldest one back into daycare now. And I just had some questions about, I know to date daycares and asymptomatic children haven't been a huge hotspot or vectors in terms of transmission, but you know, we're really not interested in being canaries in the coal mine and testing this out for everyone. I'm wondering if there's any new data or science on um, the Bay Area or globally uh, on this issue. Thank you very much. Thank you for the call. Can you help us here, Dr. Wachter? Yeah, I mean, the whole issue of, of, of uh, infection and transmission in children is one of the many fascinating things that we continue to learn about as, the, uh, as things go on. Um, the, it's one bit of happy news with, with COVID. There's a whole lot of unhappy surprises that we've gotten, but one happy surprise is kids very rarely get sick, and I will, I will use very rarely on that one because I think the science is pretty clear. Um, and, and just as happy, it's relatively unusual for kids to transmit the virus to adults. And that's different than many other viruses where the kids are really important vectors. Um, and, and it's not 100% clear why that is. It may have something to do with their anatomy. There are certain receptors in the cells that seem to be lower in kids and may be responsible for the virus burrowing in and taking root and then ultimately the kid being infectious. So that's really good news as we think about the risks and benefits of opening up schools and daycare, the fact that you can be reasonably comfortable that your kid is very unlikely to get to get very sick and, and pretty unlikely to get the disease, stay asymptomatic and give it to an adult. All of that said, there was just an outbreak in Israel, which opened up its schools where about 200, 250 uh, kids uh, got the virus and, and there was some spread. And so the risk is not zero. This is one of those. Um, and, and of course, you've all heard about this odd disease that uh, a few hundred kids have developed where several weeks after they had the infection, they had this multi-system illness where they have fevers and aches and problems with some of their organs. So 
it's one of those where it is not risk-free to have the kids in daycare, to have this kids in school. But this is one where weighing the risks and benefits of keeping kids out of daycare and school for you know another six months or another year, it strikes me that if we try to keep the kids somewhat separated from each other, try where possible to wear masks, divide the classes or daycare groups in two so the kids stay with a smaller group all the time rather than very, very large groups. It feels like it's safe enough to do as long as we're watching very, very carefully. If there's an outbreak, we have to shut it back down. Let me thank Marshall for that call. I'm going to go right to another caller. That's Mark and San Mateo. Mark, join us. You're on. Yes, hi, thanks. Just a quick question. We know that uh, six feet is safe-ish for uh, social distancing when neither party is wearing a mask. But what about when both parties are wearing a mask? Yeah, let's get into masks here. Uh, I'm glad that Mark brought this up. And Leslie, I'm going to go to you. We were talking before about asymptomatic, uh, the whole phenomenon of not being able to determine what symptoms are. You know, some are saying if you wear a mask, uh, even if you're asymptomatic, it can help, uh, can keep you from um, you know, touching your face or your nose and so forth. Uh, but what about his question specifically? He He's asking about uh, data really when it comes to both parties meeting and wearing masks as opposed to those not one not wearing a mask what do we know we know that actually you should stay the six feet apart with the mask on so the idea with the mask is that you're stopping droplets you know from you know when you talk really loudly we exude sometimes uh you know spit etc into the air and so we're trying to stop that from happening or if you coughed or if you sneezed that that cloth covering would would slow that down and prevent the other person potentially from from getting the virus if you happen to be asymptomatic so i think the best advice on that is that you should still stay your six feet apart and wear the mask and here's a listener named Holly uh, who writes, uh, I'll go to you, Robert Wachter, uh, the infection rates are going up and moving to new stages of opening is insanity. It has also led to people getting more lax, like people wearing masks as necklaces, if at all, not on their faces. Yeah, insanity is strong. I don't think that's, that's not my personal belief. I, I think that, that we needed to completely lock down when we did, and I think in the Bay Area, we were the leaders in the country doing it first. California was the first state to do it, and it saved tens of thousands of lives. And even with the, the, the surges that we are seeing, and they're fairly mild, but they're real in Southern California. California remains uh, a, a relatively unhot uh, state compared to, uh, to many others, although these, these are worrisome trends. I think we can't stay locked down forever. I think the, the tension between opening up for the sake of the economy and people's sanity and the state of the virus are, you know, are real, and we've got to make uh, the best sort of risk-benefit decisions that we can. It does strike me that in Northern California, our public health directors, our uh, our political leaders have been very, very smart about this, and I think they're doing the right thing. I think it is time to begin opening up, but very, very carefully. I think the the number of cases that we have here is low enough that we have the capacity to test new cases, to go ahead and track down contacts, to test those people. Our hospitals, including my own at UCSF, have plenty of capacity. So even if we saw a mild upsurge, we have more than enough room and PPE and all the things that we were frantically worried about uh, in March. So I think it's a prudent thing to do, but we may then have to do something that's hard, which is begin closing back down if we see an uptick. If we're not willing to do that, then we probably shouldn't open up. But I'm really confident that our leaders get it and know that we what we need to do. And I think just as importantly, when I walk around in San Francisco, it feels like you know most of the people are wearing masks. I think the, 
the story of how San Francisco was remarkably successful in the Bay Area, and this is partly a story of what the leaders and the public health officials did, but to a large extent was a story of what the citizens did. And we're coming up on a break, but uh, Leslie McClurg, maybe you can help Rachel here. She wants to know, we're a small business in San Francisco. So far, there is no direction about when we can reopen. There are dates for hair salons, bars, and bowling alleys, but not small offices. All we have heard is continue to telework, but this is not sustainable in the long run. When are we likely to be allowed back into our office? It's a great question. The San Francisco has laid out a timeline. And, you know, when we try to report on the details of what these uh, directives mean, you know, there, there are some unanswered questions. So I think what has helped me as I've reported throughout this pandemic is the question that I have today will often be answered in the coming days. So given that that, that she's raising that question, I'm sure we'll get some clarity, clarity shortly on, on small businesses and when that is safe. Hope so for her sake and all those small business owners. And for your sake, listeners, if you have questions about reopening and the latest coronavirus numbers or generally about coronavirus, give us a call now at 866-733-6786. The number for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about reopening the economy and the latest coronavirus numbers with KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg and Robert Wachter, who's professor and chair in the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and author of The, Digi the Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. If you have questions about reopening and the latest coronavirus numbers or about coronavirus research, you can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786, and we'll go to Piedmont and welcome Laura. Good morning, Laura. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. There's been some recent research on increased risk to people with type A blood. Can your guest tell us anything about increased risk to children with type A blood? Because that could influence how parents decide to, uh, what they decide to do with their kids this fall. Yeah, thank you for that question, Laura. Robert Wachter. Uh, there, I have seen the studies that look at increased risk with, uh, uh, I, I believe it was type A, but I, I don't know of any specific studies in, uh, in kids. I, I think for now, the way I think about risk is, is more related to the known risk categories, which are basically older age, uh, uh, chronic diseases, obesity, and immunosuppression. I think it might be a little early to uh, to make too many decisions based on, I think it was one study that, that looked at that, although it's important, it's going to be important to follow that. Well, apropos of that, uh, Peter wants to know if you could comment on the risks and benefits of opening schools again in the fall. We did a whole hour on that yesterday, but uh, Peter says, is it advisable to send students back to school in communities where cases are spiking? And what about the Bay Area if numbers stay where they currently are? Well, the Bay Area, I, you know, the Bay Area by and large is doing okay. There are, you know, the, they, the counties vary and some more activity in Alameda than in San Francisco, for example. But overall, if you look at the hotness of, the, of California, you know, California is so big, it's why it's pretty hard to, uh, to manage this by, uh, by the state because it's a very different uh, uh, shape of the epidemic in Southern versus Northern California right now. Southern California does, is getting hotter. Northern California, by and large, is doing okay and has, and has capacity. You know, the schools, as I said, are a really tricky problem and weighing the downside 
not just of, for the kids, but for the parents and the economy of keeping the kids out. It does feel to me like we can try to open the schools, but we've got to have a really uh, tricky plan to pull off, which is uh, lowering the number of kids in a class, keeping the, the tables and the desks much further apart, cohorting the kids so the kids stay with the same group of kids, afternoon versus morning sessions, some of a fair amount of it still being uh, still being online, and you know, and and very close observation and some testing to see if there's an outbreak. And if there's an outbreak, then you have to be willing to shut it back down. Uh, it's a very tough problem, but the the risk of keeping the kids out of school for another six months is is certainly not zero. And here is Stephen. Stephen, join us. You're on forum. Yes, uh, my question was about. Uh, I've heard the leading one of the leading symptoms uh, of someone who is uh, coming down with uh, COVID is a drop in the blood oxygen saturation. And I wanted to ask about contactless thermometers and a those inexpensive blood oxygen saturation meters that go over your finger as a potential way for uh, employers to screen their their employees. Thank you. Okay, thanks for the question. Leslie McClure, can you uh, shed some light here? You know, I, th I, I think, can I, can I toss that to Dr. Walker? I, th I think that he's going to have better expertise on that than I am. Toss it, Dr. Walker. <laughs> All right, no, thank, thanks for the toss. I'll try to catch it. Um, here's the challenge. The, you know, the challenge really is a, a version of what we spoke about earlier, which is that many people who have COVID are either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Uh, and so things like temperature checking probably are better than nothing because some people will have a temperature and it will be one of the first signs that they have COVID. And so um, it's, not a, it's not a ridiculous thing to do, but you will miss a lot of cases. That, that's what you're counting on. You'll miss a lot of cases. Using oxygen saturation, so the little gizmo that you put on your finger that measures the oxygen level of your blood, that would be awfully unusual. It is true, it's absolutely true that one of the distinctive features of COVID is that sometimes people feel fine and their oxygen level is quite low, sometimes scary low, but it tends to be a relatively late symptom and it would be pretty unusual to pick up somebody's case of COVID when they feel fine, they don't have a temperature, they don't have a cough, they don't feel short of breath, and the only thing that, the only evidence they have COVID is that their oxygen saturation has fallen. So. Uh, you know, once in a blue moon, you might pick up a case like that, but I would say that's a, uh, a, a to be a very, very low yield. The most interesting thing, maybe two points about the symptoms of COVID that are pretty interesting. One is if you look at all of the symptoms, fever, cough, shortness of breath, muscle aches and all that, and then you look at patients who don't have COVID, like they have the flu or they have some other virus, they are essentially exactly the same. And in a place like San Francisco, where our prevalence, the number of patients with COVID is very low. If every patient who comes into the hospital or to the ER and says, I'm sure I have COVID, about one in 20 of them actually do because uh, those symptoms just are exactly the same as you would have if you had a flu-like illness. The one set of symptoms that actually are fairly distinctive for COVID, if you have these, it's much more likely that you have COVID than another viral illness is the loss of taste and smell, which is a weird symptom. Then tend not to see it in other viral illnesses and so fairly specific for COVID. You can have uh, just very mild symptoms, so it gets back to the whole question of what's pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. You just have muscle ache or diarrhea, but no fever or cough. Isn't that correct? Sure, sure. More than, yeah, more than 50% of people, uh, when they come into the hospital, even if they have some symptoms, 
uh, they may have they 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 may not have a fever, so you can't use the absence of a fever to help you rule out the diagnosis. Uh, diarrhea and belly pain and GI symptoms are unusual, but not unheard of. Ten to twenty percent of people with COVID have them, so you sort of think it's it. In many cases, it is sort of like the flu in its clinical presentation, but there are a whole lot of people that are, feel perfectly fine, maybe forever and maybe for the next few days until they get their symptoms. And that's this one distinctive symptom is this loss of taste and smell that when, when we hear that, it, our, you know, our ears perk up that we say that makes it significantly more likely it's going to turn out to be COVID. I wonder if you could talk for just a moment or two, Bob, about, uh, I have a friend who recently wrote a paper on super spreaders, and I was struck by the fact that about eight, nine percent responsible for, well, about 81 percent of the spread, these so-called super spreaders. What do we know? Wow, it's it's an amazing phenomenon, Michael, and and, and one of the, you know, money, <laughs> this thing has surprised us in, in a lot of ways, and that's been one of the surprises. So what we know is the average person with uh, with COVID in the absence of distancing and mask wearing, just in, in the normal state of affairs, uh, will spread it to two and a half to three other people. That's the average. But if you go around and say, okay, every person with COVID is gonna spread it to two and a half other people, uh, that's, it's an average, meaning that there are a fair number of people who will spread it only to one or maybe even less than one. And then there are a few people that will spread it to 20 or 40, or there have been cases where they spread it to 50 to 100. And that's fascinating. In some ways, it's like the asymptomatic but versus pre-symptomatic thing. We don't know who they are. They don't have labels on their forehead. So we have to assume that everybody who has COVID could be that. What it is about them or their virus or their genes or the anatomy of their mouth and their nose and how they talk and how they sneeze or cough, at this point, I think we pretty much have no idea. Uh, there's a lot of research in it. It's a very interesting thing. And if we discover why they are super spreaders, we might be able to do something about it. I'd say the only practical value of knowing about super spreaders is it's a very strong argument for uh, large groups uh, to be the last thing that comes back. So, you know, opening up the barber shop or opening up the dentist's office where you're going to have one-on-one -on -one contact. And if someone spreads, it's to one person is one thing. Opening up the, the football stadium or opening up the... Uh, the Chase Center for Concerts, where if you happen to have a super spreader, they could spread it to 100 people. That is how you have massive outbreaks. And so we've got to be very, very careful about uh, opening up for big crowds. Again, Robert Wachter is professor and chair in the Department of Medicine at UCSF. And uh, Leslie McClurg, let me go back to you. Carlo has a question about masks. He wants to know, are plastic face shields more effective in preventing the spread of the virus than face masks? I would say yes, but does anyone want to wear a plastic face shield? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think the, we want to choose things that are comfortable. I know I've gone through four or five masks, and, and really the one that I'm more likely to wear and remember and everything is if it is comfortable. So I would suggest that people choose a mask that they are likely to wear and keep on and not move around a lot. And a face shield uh, looks awfully uncomfortable. I have not put one on yet, but I, I, I wouldn't want to wear them in public, that's for sure. And here's David joining us from Lagunitas. David, you're on forum. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I heard or read a report uh, from another doctor saying that uh, it's possible that we're not seeing as many deadly cases because the virus might be mutating because the virus wants to stay alive. And so if it kills people, then it can't stay alive. And so it's mutating to not be as deadly in order to stay alive, basically. Is there any validity to that? Let me go to you, Bob Wachter. Uh, at this point, 
The best evidence is no. We're all hoping for that. You can look at, I think sometimes people, for, there, there are things that we know. The virus does mutate. That's partly why we can track where a given virus entered the country, for example and how it spread because there are point mutations that happen all the time and it's a little bit of a genetic signature that allows us to sort of distinguish one virus from another. As far as, I'd say most of the science at this point says the virus is, is about the same as it was when it first got to the, to the U.S. Uh, four months ago in terms of both ease of spread and deadliness. Now the deadliness looks better than it did because we're testing more people including more people with fewer symptoms and in some cases no symptoms. So as the denominator of cases grows up, it looks like the virus is getting milder. The What's called the case fatality rate will go down, but I, that is mostly a phenomenon that's related to more testing and more patients in the, in the denominator of the equation. We're also seeing better outcomes. Uh, you know, we were talking about the medicines before. They're really, uh, the, the progress in medicines I think has been not all that impressive. The only one that's been truly demonstrated to make a difference is this one remdesivir that is only IV, only giving the patients in the hospital and the difference is relatively, relatively mild. But we have gotten better. So at UCSF, our mortality rate for patients who are sick enough to be in, in the hospital on a ventilator is running about one in five, whereas in the early studies it was one in two, sometimes even worse than that. And that's not really because of medicines, maybe there's a little contribution to medicines, but just the way we, the sort of tricks of the trade that we've come to understand about how to manage, manage these patients. So when you sort of weigh all that, more testing, more, more cases that we know about that of patients with fewer symptoms, makes it look like the virus is getting more benign. But I think the best evidence is at least so far, that's wishful thinking. It's still the same virus. And in the Bay Area, 99% of us, 98% of us are not immune to it. And therefore, the dynamics, the setup for badness is exactly the same now as it was uh, in February if we let our guards down. Have we learned anything more about uh, hydroxychloroquine, which President Trump was uh, presenting as some kind of panacea? I don't know what he was actually saying. But. Well, he said it's a miracle drug and everybody should be on it. And, uh, and we've learned that that's wrong. <laughs> and we've learned that, the, that our political leaders should not be making pronouncements about drugs in the absence of evidence. I think that's, that's a pretty clear lesson. Uh, the studies of hydroxychloroquine, it wasn't ridiculous to, to hope that it was an effective medicine. There's, there's some scientific evidence of, of reasons why it might be antiviral. But now there have been enough good studies that show uh, that have not shown any evidence of benefit whatsoever. There are other studies ongoing. Maybe we'll find something surprising. It's not like any of us were rooting against it. We were hoping it would work. It'd be great to have something, particularly something you could take orally at home, as opposed to this one medicine that's IV, uh, that worked. But multiple studies have now come out. None of them show any hint of benefit, and uh, and some of them show a at least moderate to some even significant risk of, of heart problems with it. So at this point, the only people who should be taking that medicines are people who are taking it for malaria or rheumatologic diseases where we understand it very well and it works for, for COVID, I would not be taking it at this point. And let me go back, if I may, Leslie McClurk, to you. A couple of questions about opening up. Uh, Heather says, I went to the dentist in San Francisco two weeks ago. She was closer to me than a hairdresser would be. So when can we get a haircut? 
Yeah, it depends on which county that you are in. Like I said, San Francisco has laid out a particular timeline. Some counties are allowing haircuts. I noticed Napa is allowing that. So I was wondering, well, can I drive to Napa to, to go get a haircut? But then I looked in my county, which is Alameda County, and I'm still not supposed to leave the county for non-essential reasons. So, so it depends. I would say soon is probably the broad answer to that question. And I wonder if you could also give uh, a broad or, for that matter, narrow answer to a question Timothy's raising. He says, COVID-19 cases are increasing in Sacramento County, yet when I visited a Target store, there was no social distancing nor mask use. Why are there no mandates for large stores other than Costco or Branch 99 in California? If only I was the official making those decisions, I could answer that more, <laughs> more articulately. Um, well, the problem is we don't have should... uh, kind of unified uh, systems here. I exactly. Mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think you, that, you, you that, answered you know, the answer there. Well, I, it's, uh, yeah, we, we, we do have county by county guidance, which, which is a little bit annoying in a way, but also, as I said, somewhat appropriate because the counties have different trajectories and different dynamics of the, uh, of the epidemic. To me, uh, if I were about to go into a big store and did not see everybody wearing their mask, I would turn around and go away. Um, I think that it's okay to be opening stores and, you know, I mean, we're already used to this with the supermarkets, but people should be keeping their distance and people, all, everyone needs to wear their mask. That's true on airplanes. And that's one of the things I worry about. You know, we can have a policy, for example, that everybody in the airplane is wearing a mask, but if people don't do it, policy makes no difference. And, the virus, you know, the idea that you wore it for the first half hour and then you got bored and took it off or uncomfortable and you took it off, the virus is equally uh, likely to spread in your last hour of the flight than the first hour of the flight. So I think we've got to be pretty strict about this, that people need to be wearing their masks. And the question before about six feet, six feet isn't magic. Six feet is the distance at which droplets tend to have fallen to the ground before they reach you. If both parties are wearing masks, then it's reasonably safe to be somewhat closer than six feet, although your preference would be not to. If you're talking about seeing a dentist, if you're talking about going getting your hair cut, six feet is impossible. So at the very least, you need both parties to be wearing masks, and that should lower the risk of something that's acceptable. And let's bring another well, there, caller there on. Are... That's oh, I'm sorry, Leslie, you had something to add, please. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think it is on us. It's also on businesses. You know, I noticed that if there is someone checking at the front of a grocery store, say, you know, reminding you to put your mask on, or some grocery stores have lines on the floor pointing where you can and can't go or physical barriers, you know, to help people stay further apart. It is on us. It's on the businesses. It's on our employers and it's on officials. So it's, I think we all need to take responsibility for making sure this thing doesn't get out of hand. Well, John asks, uh, San Francisco is using a 30 foot minimum distance for social distancing without a mask. Where does this number come from and why have other cities not adopted it? Do you know, Leslie? I mean, I think that the officials are using data based for what makes sense in their particular area. So, for example, San Francisco is a really dense urban center. It makes sense to have different rules there than, say, in the northern counties of California where there aren't any cases. So, you know, they're making decisions based on the, the science and the research that they're seeing that makes sense for their particular community. And here's Guy. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Walker. Yeah. Yeah, the, the 30 feet, uh, so that came from Thomas Aragon, who, who is in charge of the, the public health uh, directives like that. And when Thomas has explained it, he has said that six feet is really the number that we care about. But if you're out, and, and six feet is really quite safe, particularly when you're, you know, when you're outside, it's safer than inside. Six feet is safe when you're 
when you're outside. The 30 feet came from because if your two people are walking toward each other on a street and they're 30 feet away, you want them to then put on the mask so that there's a guarantee that it's on by the time that they're six feet away. There's no risk. If you truly were 20 feet away from someone outside, the risk is zero. But I think Tomas's feeling is we want a uniform rule that everybody can remember. And, you know, I was out walking the dog this morning and had my mask around my neck. And as I got within 30 feet of someone, I put it on because that 30 feet then closed to 10 feet. So that's the rationale. Important question. I'll go to you again, Bob Wachter, from Guy, who wants to know, what's the latest understanding regarding virus transmission via surfaces? It's it's. Uh, a little less scary than we thought in the beginning. The you know the the studies some studies came out in the very beginning that said the virus can stay on a shiny metal surface for a couple of days and stay on cardboard or paper for you know for several hours, and that led everybody to kind of sequester the mail for you know for half a day. Uh, the number of cases that have been transmitted like that is small, but again, it's not zero when you look at. Uh, the cruise ships, for example, where uh, it seemed like a fair amount of the transmission probably was, you know, shiny, smooth surfaces everywhere. Someone coughs, touches their hand, touches the railing of a staircase, someone touches it, then touches their mouth. That's the mechanism. So it's an argument for, you know, for, for being really good about uh, hand hygiene, about, you know, washing your hands every hour or two, keeping sanitizer on you if you're gonna to be touching surfaces. When I go to the supermarket, I'm not only wearing a mask, but I bring wipes and I make sure I wipe down the, uh, the shopping cart. Uh, you know, I don't think we need to be quite as frenzied about it as we were in the very beginning, but the risk isn't zero. So I think you need to be very careful and the carefulness is mostly about cleaning your hands. Well, here's a little pushback, uh, Bob Wachter from a listener who writes, yesterday morning and this morning, I walked with my dog at Chrissy Field. I was wearing a mask. I estimate that at most 10% of the runners, bike riders, pedestrians I saw were wearing masks or even had them as an ornament around their necks. I think that your guest from UCSF is vastly overestimating San Francisco's current mask wearing. That may be. I mean, I've tried to stay home and I see what my neighborhood looks like and I see what it looks like at UCSF Medical Center and a few other areas. So I, it's point taken. I mean, there may be areas where people are out in recreation. I do have, you know, it is clear that the risk of transmission outside is far lower than it is inside. San Francisco is a breezy place. So the chances of getting it if you're, uh, you know, you come within six, if a runner is six feet away not wearing a mask, the chances are very low. But I do think this is still a scary thing. And as I said, there's nothing really about the virus or us that has changed in three months. So if we let our guards down too much, uh, there's every reason to believe that we'll have a surge. So I hope people, people uh, pay attention. Could I also go back to services with you for a moment and uh, ask about playground services? Yeah, you know, I don't think it's been tested. Uh, you know, the, the playground surfaces would be of two varieties if you're talking about the, the metal surface of, you know, something the kids are hanging on. I would see that as, you know, the, the studies of metal or, or, you know, something smooth and shiny that's not porous. There is evidence the virus can live there for, you know, for a day or two. So if my kids were on it, I would probably be wiping it down before the kids went in there. The surfaces, like the kids are running on, running around on 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 sort of fake grass or or uh, or uh, gravel, that should be completely safe. You know, it really has to do with how smooth and how porous or non-porous the surface is. But you know, you know, if the if if you're touching something that is you know metal and shiny and smooth. And, you know, and an hour before you, someone sneezed on it and you touch it and then you touch your, your nose or your mouth, 
the risk is low, but it's not zero. So I'd be careful about that. Can I go back to you on this, Leslie? Leslie McClure? Yeah, I think what I want to say, you know, in relation to the, the playgrounds and in San Francisco and on planes, for that matter, to kind of loop all of this together is that what is so slippery right now is to watch what your neighbors are doing and then copy that. So, for example, I noticed at certain marches I, were co I was covering last week, most people wear, were wearing masks. But if a few people started to take off their masks, it was a really slippery slope, which I've noticed also can happen, you know, in our parks or on our trails or like this listener was saying in San Francisco. If most people aren't wearing them, it's more likely you're not going to and at a playground, etc. So remembering that what your neighbor, do your neighbor is doing is not necessarily the right thing to be doing. And the more, you know, likely that we're going to keep on the right track is if we don't sort of let down our guard. And I, I guess I'd add, I'd add that, the, the, you know, the messaging on masks also was a little muddied. The messaging uh, part of, you know, part of it was you're wearing it largely to protect other people. Now, it is true that it is more protective of other people, but the protection for you as the wearer is not zero. It's actually significant. So it's not just an act of charity to other people. It's actually an act of self-protection as well. And here's Eileen from San Francisco. Eileen, welcome. You're on the air. Thank you. I was wondering if you had any information about people who are HIV positive, who are on antivirals. And from what I think I read, that the virus enters through the CCR5. So I was wondering if they're on CCR5 inhibitors, if that makes a difference. Thank you for the question, Dr. Wachter. Uh, boy, I'd have to ask one of my colleagues. I do not know the answer to that. I, I, you know, I would assume that someone with HIV who is well controlled on antivirals would uh, would be in okay shape. I don't know the specifics of of the of the various inhibitors, and I've not yet seen a study of the outcomes of patients with with HIV infection. We generally treat people if they are if their immune system is suppressed. We assume, and the studies are reasonably good to say that they are at somewhat higher risk. Of, uh, of getting sick, but I've not actually seen HIV listed in that group of patients, particularly well-controlled HIV on meds. So uh, I, I think I, I need to find out more. Maybe maybe there needs to be more research. We were talking about blood a bit ago. I, I and... can actually, I, oh, I can actually jump, jump in there. Just, yeah. I, well, I happen to be reporting on this. So I, I just talked to some of your colleagues, Dr. Wachter, the last few days about this. And, and there's good news around HIV. They're not exactly clear. We don't know exactly why the HIV population, HIV positive population is faring well against coronavirus, but they are. And one theory happens to be that, yes, their antivirals are giving them some sort of a defense. But, but it's not clear. We don't have the data yet to really know why. But fortunately, this group thought that they would get hit, being that they're immunocompromised, but we're not seeing that. So it's good news. Great. Leslie, a little uh, pushback on uh, face shields, believe it or not. Now, let me get your response to something Marcel writes. She says, I totally disagree with your guest assumption that masks are more comfortable than face shields. Shields allow you to see face, to hear better, to breathe more easily, and don't tug on a nose piece. Well, I mean, that's that's news to me. Like I said, I, I haven't worn them. My my other fear around telling people to wear face shields is that I think, and maybe Dr. Walker can correct me here, uh, is that we need to reserve those for our healthcare workers. Uh, they look more uncomfortable to me, but but I but like I said, I haven't worn them. So maybe you, your guest is correct. Can you weigh in, Bob Walker? Yeah, uh, there's a there's there's a number of infectious disease experts that believe quite strongly that we should have gone in the face shield direction rather than the mass direction that they are equally, if not more protective because they cover your eyes as well as your, your nose and mouth. 
that in, they're less stigmatizing because you would see someone's entire face. And it's, it's a perfectly good, good argument. They're not particularly uncomfortable. You're wearing a headband and it's sort of no more uncomfortable than wearing a hat with a headband. I think I haven't been pushing them because I think it's sort of hard enough to get a message across that's, that everybody should wear masks and to switch gears now and say, actually not masks, let's do face shields and then then manufacture you know, 100 million face shields and get them out there. That just seems like too heavy a lift. But I think by and large, if someone chooses to go that way rather than the mask, that's perfectly fine. Couple of quick questions. John wants to know, I'm 75. My immune system is suppressed to some degree due to multiple high risk. Am I gonna to have to stay isolated until a vaccine is available, Bob Wachter? Well, you know, I've got parents who are 90 and 84, and they are largely staying at home. My mother will go to the store, but very carefully with a mask. She'll meet with friends and sit outside 10 feet away. So I hope people aren't staying inside, you know, completely. But I think you, you do have to be careful. The risk of, of death if you get COVID at age 75 is many, many fold higher than if even if you're 60 or, or 50. Um, but I think, yeah, we've got to, you know, older people have to be on higher alert. The risk is significantly higher. We will leave it there. Bob Wachter, always good to have you on Forum. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Leslie McClurg, always good to have you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we have another hour of Forum right up ahead after the news. Stay tuned for that. For all of us at KQED, I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.